0: Welcome to The Defiant Podcast. Each week, we sit with those defying traditional finance and legacy institutions, the biggest brains and biggest names, and also those making a quieter but profound impact, the founders, investors, and creators of decentralized finance and Web3. You'll hear from them right here and get the scoop on how they're building at the frontier. I'm your host, Defiant founder, Camila Russo, putting this new world within your reach. Nexo is a go-to platform for all things crypto. Invest in the hottest coins out there and start earning interest of up to 20% paid out daily. Need cash ASAP but don't want to sell? Use your crypto as collateral and receive a credit line at premium rates. Open your account at nexo.io till March 31st and receive up to $100 welcome bonus. That's N-E-X-O All right, here we are with Laura Shin. Laura, welcome to the Defiant podcast. I'm so thrilled that you could join me.
1: I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: The former senior editor at Forbes and one of the first mainstream journalists to report full-time on crypto, Laura Shin has seen it, been there, and written about it all. She's been reporting on the space as long as I have. She's the creator and host of the popular podcast Unchained and recently published her first book, The Cryptopians idealism, greed, lies, and the making of the first big cryptocurrency craze. Too much acclaim. But where did it all start for Laura? And where did the inspiration for Cryptopian stem from?
1: So I was covering personal finance for Forbes, and I'd been covering that beat for, I think, like four years or so. And I was getting a little bit antsy. I just wanted something new. You know, I really do best with like a challenge and like learning new things. And I was getting to the point where, oh, I feel like I kind of already know all this material. So it was just not fun for me. I was losing interest and the Forbes editor said, oh, hey, we have this idea to do a Forbes FinTech 50 list. Do you want to head up the list with another reporter? So she and I divided the list into categories and I took the category digital currencies and then just completely fell down the rabbit hole. So that was how I got started, but that was in 2015. And then the year after is when I started Unchained in 2016.
0: Well so basically okay so you discovered crypto in 2015 and then one year later you were already leaving Forbes and starting your own crypto dedicated like No platform. no so okay so Okay
1: so the so I I was with Forbes altogether I think for like 5 years but mm-hmm. the first four of those years, I was a freelancer. And so when I started the podcast, I was still a freelanc- freelancer. I was still my own entity. Oh. And then what happened was, so, okay, so I you know, discovered Bitcoin and blockchain as it was called in 2015. And mm-hmm. I was very obsessed with it immediately. And I think there might've been one time or another where they said, oh, hey, like, do you want to come on full-time? And I said, I'll come on full-time if you let me cover only Bitcoin and blockchain. And they were like, no, 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 no. Because at that time, not that many people were interested. So it just made no sense. And they were like, we're not Mm going to do that. So then I was like, okay, then I'm not going to come work for you full time. So then in 2017, when finally things started really picking up, then i think i was like getting other job offers so then they were like okay we'll bring you on full time and we will let you cover this full time and so that's why like in my bio i say that i was the first mainstream media reporter to only cover crypto because at that time i knew like none of the other reporters were like only doing that i knew i was that was like i i was allowed to only do that but yes when i joined them full time in 2017 i was already doing the podcast
0: and then and what see. happened
1: was in the course of those seven months when I was at Forbes full time, the downloads were getting so great. And someone who was doing some volunteer work for me said to me, Oh, hey, like she was doing research on different crypto podcasts for her full time job. And she said, Oh, Laura, by the way, you know, you could be making this much money from sponsorships. And I had no idea. And I was like, Oh, okay, that's more than I make from my full time job. <laughs> so then I said, Okay, well, you know what? If that's the case, then I will leave Forbes, and then you know it doesn't take me my full week to do the podcast. So I will use the non-podcast time then to work on a book, which is what now I've been doing for the last four years because I left Forbes in February 2018. And then it took me, I think it was like maybe roughly six months to do the proposal. And then it was like another, you know, maybe six to eight weeks to do the contract. And so I didn't officially get the book contract until the fall of 2018.
0: I see. Okay. Got it. Yeah. Okay. So you started Unchained in 2016 while you were still at Forbes and then you left to just like do your book, like write the book.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But one key mm. point is that since I had started the, fo- the podcast at Forbes as a freelancer, they actually wrote the contract for me so that I owned it from the beginning. And so, mm. whereas I think, had been a full-time staffer and I had worked there, then I don't think I would have owned the podcast. So right. the fact that I started it before and then later got hired full-time meant that, that was you know, I was having and already owning it. And then so when I left, yeah, I didn't have to like negotiate anything because I already owned
0: it. Oh, that's so. amazing. What do you think got you so interested in crypto?
1: You know, that's such a good question. It's hard to explain. Maybe some of it was because I was reporting that fintech 50 list. I was Mm -hmm. learning all about the flaws in the banking system, you know, because all the fintechs were saying, oh, well, these these are all the problems with the banking system or the financial system. And these are the problems that we're going to solve. And then so when I kind of understood how they're doing it, and then I learned about like how Bitcoin worked, it was like, whoa, well, this is clearly superior. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, it was just like mind blowing (laughs) to me. And You know, it's just like any other crypto person, I just kept learning more. And, uh, you know, just when you learn something, it just makes you ask another question and then you learn that and then you you have to seek out this other answer and then you just keep going and it kind of just never stops. So I think that's what happened.
0: Got it. Yeah, can definitely relate. (laughs) So... (laughs) So what for cryptopians, like what was the origin of the book idea? Like was it, was it supposed to be about the founding and like the history of Ethereum from the start? And if so, like what, what prompted that idea?
1: No. And and I still actually feel that the main idea is more like how the ICO craze happened. But in order to understand that, you have to understand the history of Ethereum because Ethereum was the main platform.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: that's why like at the end of the book, it kind of branches out a little bit away. But since, yeah, the book is, is like three quarters of history of Ethereum. And then at the end, it kind of branches out because really the mania was only that last, whatever, like depending on how you count, like six to twelve months of the book. Like really Mm -hmm. six to nine if you're really thinking about it. So so that's why, yeah, the book kind of mostly feels like a history of Ethereum. But really it was like, you know, I mean, you live this too. It's like when when you came out the other side the ICO craze, it was just very clear that something historic had happened, and that mm-hmm. it was totally new and different and really crazy. And so, you know, my idea was like, how do I explain that? But yeah, in order to explain it, like you have to understand the origins in Ethereum and like the history of the DAO and all that to to like really explain it. But yeah, then the actual kind of bubble itself was only really at the very end. So that's why I think the book really mostly feels like a history of Ethereum. But the question I wanted to answer was, how did the ICO craze happen?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think like we both had this similar sensation at the end of 2017 of like, what just happened? Like, this is insane. I had never experienced anything so crazy. And I had been like, you know, reporting on Argentina, like pretty wild market, but like this just felt different. And so was it like, okay, there definitely needs to be a book about this? Yeah, well...
1: Also some of it was I've just wanted to write a book for so long and then mm. just feeling like I had witnessed history between those two things you know just knowing it was something significant that needed to be recorded for posterity and then just having that desire like I've always wanted to write a book and like now I can I can create the time to do that so yeah so that's yeah that's how I just decided to do it
0: and then about the like the the process of researching and and writing the book itself what was like what was your methodology because like you like how long did it take to write this book it was like like 3 4 years yeah so if you if you
1: don't count the proposal then i guess 3 years and and like well i know actually roughly exactly 3 years uh, but mm-hmm. if you count the proposal which Maybe it shouldn't count because, frankly, the proposal looks nothing like a book. But yeah, so I guess three years because yeah, the final all the final stuff I guess happened in October, November. Yeah, and I think I signed the contract in October. But yeah, I would say like I I ended up. So one thing that I do know that I did was that for the contract I said that I wanted eighteen months to turn in the first draft rather than just one year, which is I think more typical for a first book. And I don't know why I just wanted to give myself that room maybe because I, I don't know, I was nervous basically. And so, yeah, so maybe I just spent a little bit longer reporting. Like I remember, yeah, I, I, so I remember I basically spent a full year reporting and then I remember that I realized, oh, okay, I only have six months now to write a full book. <laughs> and I, like a little, I was a little bit freaked out. And I don't know if anybody who listens to this has ever used this website called Focusmate, but Basically, it's a website where you just get matched with like a work buddy for a certain period of time. And for some reason, it's very effective for me. It, like make, it makes me very productive. And I like used Focusmate Relentlessly to work on the writing because I just was like, okay, I don't have a lot of time and I have to, to like write a whole book in six months. So I just like used it all the time and just wrote and wrote and wrote. And, wrote. and then, yeah, and then I finally turned in the, the, the full draft six months later. <laughs>
0: Okay, so you spent the full year just reporting and then six months writing.
1: Yeah, but okay. But then what happened was that the editor wasn't happy with the first draft. And that's not a good feeling for a writer, right? Like I, I was kind of like, oh, shoot. You know, what if they cancel? I was like, I was just like a little bit freaked out. And yet at the same time, I, I also sort of knew like it, it's going to be okay because I, I think I like sensed that I at least have good bones in my story like it just needed to be like polished. And so we did like a test run where I kind of did some additional edits and then my editor loved it and it was good for me because I didn't even feel like I'd done very much. And I was like, "Oh, okay, if that's all he wants, like that's easy, I can do that." So then so then I did that. And then I think during that period, I still was doing additional reporting because, you know, I can think of like certain pieces of, you know, information that I did get during that period. So And then frankly, you know, all the DAO hack, hacker stuff happened even later. So even though technically the writing was supposed to be finishing in that last year, I, I was still
0: reporting. <laughs> in 2016, the DAO, a decentralized venture fund on Ethereum, had raised $139 million in ETH by the time the crowd sale ended, making it the most successful crowdfunding effort to that date. Weeks later, a hacker siphoned 31% of the ETH in the DAO, which was about 3.6 million, or 5% of all ETH then outstanding. In her new book, Laura investigates the DAO hacker. Who was this hacker, and how did Laura find a credible suspect to one of the greatest mysteries in crypto? Step Finance is the front page of Solana. Crypto moves fast, with hundreds of applications launching daily, and keeping track of it all is a full-time job. Step brings everything into one easy-to-use dashboard. Step's portfolio management dashboard enables Solana users to visualize, analyze, execute, and aggregate transactions across all Solana contracts at the click of a button. Step is built by DeFi Degen for DeFi DGents. Get started by visiting step.finance and connect your wallet today. So, okay, so this is very fascinating and like
1: like most things in crypto, it's kind of crazy. So, okay, so as you read in the book, and I don't want to give too many spoilers for people who haven't read it, but at the time, there were some suspects that were identified. And when I picked this up years later, I pursued those just to like, you know, pursue whatever the 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 basic leads are. And the way the book was eventually going to be published was just showing my homework. Like, you know, I did these interviews. Here's kind of like why they came under suspicion. Here's what their responses were. And then just sort of not saying anything conclusive, but just being like, I'm just presenting, you know, I'm just like following the the lead and like finishing out this investigation kind of thing. And then, so as you probably know, you know, when you are finishing up a book, they do what are called like three final passes. And then it's like between you and the publishing house, right? It's like they have it and they do like legal and copy editing and proofreading and, you know, what all the index, like whatever they're doing, and then they pass it back to you. And then you, cause like they make changes. And so then like my fact checker and I were just kind of like making other tweaks, like, cause sometimes, you know, in editing, they like might introduce something that's like inaccurate or whatever. So we were tweaking it. and. In between the first and the second pass is when Alex Vandesand, who was involved in rescuing the money, he's a Brazilian Ethereum Foundation person. He initially started as a user experience designer. And he reached out to me and he said, Oh, hey, you know, five years ago when the DAO hack happened, the Brazilian federal police opened an investigation into the DAO. And by extension, into me because I'm Brazilian. And, and they said, you know, well, he's involved, but could he even be the hacker? And so Alex wanted to commission some kind of report to help exonerate himself. But these reports can be expensive. And so he was thinking, like, who else could use this? And he thought of me, because you know, I was still working on my book. And the company that he commissioned a report from, CoinFirm, gave him a discount in exchange for credit in my book. And so, when we got the report, Alex and I were kind of like learning all this info from it. And the report basically chronicled the cash outs that the DAO attacker was doing, meaning, you know, they had all this ETC, Ethereum Classic, which was the new coin that got created after Ethereum hard forked. And it wasn't very usable <laughs> because it was brand new and, you know, it was kind of this minority chain, not that many people were interested in the fall of 2016. And and still today, not, you know, not I mean, not that many people are interested, and so it wasn't like something that was very usable and and useful to the hacker, and so they were trying to convert it to actually Bitcoin of all things, and the exchange that they were using for this is Shapeshift, which at that time was it, so it didn't take KYC, meaning it didn't take you know your customer identities and stuff like that, so you know there were no like customer accounts, so it wasn't like. I could have just tried to find somebody at Shapeshift and be like, "Hey, like, you know, who whose account was that that was converting this ETC to BTC?" And instead, the way it worked was that it had a public API, so all the transactions were public, and so they were like transparent and open. And so, you know, we were kind of like mapping the the cash outs onto just like a like a what call it? Just like a schedule of the day, and we could see like. Oh, okay, so from UTC zero, you know the zero hour UTC to like I think it was like fifteen hundred or something. That was when the cash outs tended to happen, and I was like, okay, well, where in the world is that like morning tonight? And it was like, okay, Asia. But I, I, I had gotten these customer service emails from Shapeshift that the DAO attacker had sent when they were like preparing their attack, just like because you know they were like. Convert. I think it was they converted Bitcoin to Ether and DAO tokens before they did the attack. And in that time, I think they like weren't familiar with ShapeShift, so they sent in some customer service emails. And two of them were kind of too short to really say much about their identity. But the third one was just a little bit longer. And from reading it, I could just feel this person is a fluent English speaker. I just... I just knew it, you know, and I even tested my assumption against, you know, with other people and they agreed like, yeah, because it was using like shorthand and like, I don't know, it just like was even, it's not even just that it was like a good English sentence, but like the shorthand too was even just like another level of fluency. Hmm. And so it was kind of like, huh, okay, fluent English speaker, but these cash out times were Asia. So then, by the way, you know, I'm, by the way, I'm supposed to be turning in my second pass, which like at that point, you're supposed to only give the most minimal changes. Like you're not supposed to make major changes.
0: (laughs) So like, it was just like. And you, and you just had this like huge (laughs) bombshell on your
1: hands. (laughs) Yeah. Well, but, but, but I didn't have the identity at that point. All I had was, so I had, yeah, like
0: clues and I wanted to keep digging. So, so, but you did have the account of who you suspected or who this research firm suspected was the Dow hacker, right? No. So, okay.
1: So then what happened was I, so I had, so I had the cash out times and I had the, just you know, kind of this profile, like, okay, they're working during Asian hours. Mm-hmm. And I had to turn in the book and I really faced this question, like, should I tell them that I have this new information? I want to report more, but like already it's like not the best time to do this. Right. And I did and yes they weren't exactly happy and they were like no you cannot have more time like we have to send this out to like publish it and yet I sent it to chainalysis and I was like hey like here are some of the you know addresses like I I would love to to like you know learn more about like where did this money go blah 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 I didn't know they had that demixing capability and the you know with with my article and my book this was the first time that they publicly disclose that they have that ability. And then from after seeing where the money went to the different exchanges, you know, I can't talk about this part too much because obviously exchanges have privacy policies, but one of my sources was able to get somebody at an exchange to tell them whose name was on one of the accounts. Not, sorry, that's not true. What happened to the money on one of the, for one of the accounts where the Bitcoin had been deposited after the wasabi mixing. And it was converted to Grin, which is kind of a an obscure coin. And then it was withdrawn to this grin node, and the address on it was grin.tobi.ai. And then we saw the other, so we found the IP address that was there, and we saw other Bitcoin Lightning nodes at that IP address. And we looked those up on a Bitcoin Lightning Explorer, and we saw one of those Bitcoin Lightning nodes was named 10X. And then when we put 10X and Toby AI and or it was just 10X actually. And then we, we saw, oh, the CEO is Toby AI. <laughs> and so we were like, oh, okay. And then, so then after that, then I went back and like, kind of filled in everything else. And then it was good because once we had that name, then all the other things fit, right? He- is fluent in English. He lives in Asia. He was very interested in the DAO. He was very familiar with its code. He was calling out what he thought were vulnerabilities in the DAO code. He contacted the creators about that. He wrote blog posts about it. And then, you know, granted, so obviously, but when you are finishing up a book, it's many months before it's going to be published, right? And so at that time, I was like debating, should I reach out to his former co-founder who they had a falling out? But I could see that they technically had been working together at the time of the Dow hack, and I didn't know if they'd been accomplices. And there's so much lead time that I just thought it created too much of a wild card. So I didn't interview him until we went to do the Forbes article, and I did that literally just days before we published. And I literally spent two hours interviewing him, trying to figure out whether or not he might have known anything about before I finally decided I think I'm comfortable enough that he doesn't know but anyway yeah he he clearly didn't but the point is one other last bit i wanted to tell you is that of course once i had a name then i went to my publisher and even though before they'd been like, no, 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 you have to finish this book. Then of course, once I was like, okay, we have a name. Then they were like, oh, okay, okay. We will, we'll push it. And we'd actually already pushed the publication date once, but they agreed to push it again. But the thing is that people might notice when they read it, This the section about it is like kind of, you know, a slim in the epilogue. And the reason is that, you know, I'd already written a little bit on, who, on you know, what I said, the previous investigation and it was X number of words. And they said, you cannot write too many more words than what is already there. We're going to take that out and you're going to put this in. And the reason is just things like, they were like, honestly, if you add extra pages, it even does things like it changes the dimensions of the book jacket. And there's just like all kinds of extra downstream effects and it's like too complicated. So that's why, you know, I mean, there were many reasons why, but like in the end we decided like, the best way is to reveal the news in a news article. And then it also like alleviates some of the issues. Cause like, you know, if we put in the book, what if it gets scooped? Like what if somebody sees it? And cause there's such a long time in between or just also book publishers aren't used to breaking that kind of big news. So they just felt like it's better if like an actual news outlet breaks. So there were a lot of reasons why the rollout was more like that. But yeah, part of it also was the lateness of of when we got this information. So
0: that's so interesting. That's, yeah, that's so cool that, that's that's amazing. So so that's why the the actual kind of research and and the name and everything is is like on the epilogue, right? It's not on like in in the actual Tao chapters. Exactly. Yeah, because
1: it it would all came together at the end, and then people, if you wow. compare the epilogue against the Forbes article, there's a lot more in the Forbes article just because I had that mm-hmm. room, and yeah, just yeah,
0: so. <laughs> Wow, and then were you able to? I can't remember. I think you mentioned this in the book, but were you able to interview the guy, like the Ten X founder, or did he never get back to you? He just sent
1: one email saying your statement, your statement and conclusion is factually inaccurate. I can give you more details if you like. And so I immediately wrote him back saying yes, I would like more details, but he never responded. <laughs> and then the wow. same thing with the Forbes article. We, you know, we sent him the fact-checking cuz since the Forbes article has more information, mm-hmm. I sent him all of that and there was no response whatsoever.
0: So where where is the case now? Like uh, are there like legal actions being taken against him or like what's next with this?
1: I mean, I published the information, you know, whether or not there's any other thing going on. I, you know, nobody, I, I, yeah, I can't really say, but Mm -hmm. yeah, I, I would be interested to see. I remember that I did ask a couple of different prosecutors whether or not this was even illegal and there isn't like a consensus view on that, which was kind of interesting, but yeah, I mean, it's, I I feel like I sort of did my part. And then if there's anything else, you know, uh, I guess we'll find out later.
0: That's interesting on the point on like whether this even is illegal, right? Can you kind of expand on that? Oh, well,
1: it kind of goes to just how, you know, right now there's no regulation around crypto, or they're even trying to figure out what the regulations are. It just really has to do with how new the technology is. You know, when you apply kind of these older regulations and laws to a new thing, you know, there can be questions about is the nature of the new thing does it really fit with what the old law is being applied to you know it's it's the same thing with like tokens and securities you know some people say oh the, this is just a totally new thing and so securities laws don't apply but there are other people who are like no 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 this is this is a security and you know so it just it I, that's why i think it's just not there haven't been enough cases or something to kind of figure it out but You know, honestly, so I have a podcast, so we're recording this before my next episode goes out on, which is going to come out on Tuesday, March 1st. And in it, I have some of the people who worked on the DAO on the show. And interestingly, one of them, because so in the time of the DAO hack, this question, you know, is like, or, or the phrase code is law, like people were discussing that a lot. And some people were asking, like, is it really law? Is it not? And one of the DAO creators. His name is Lefteris Karapetsas, and he was one of the employees at Slockit. He was like, I really disagree with that. You know, the idea that my code would become law, he was like, no, (laughs) I really wouldn't want that. And they kind of disagreed a little bit. So that was interesting. You know, I feel like there's, yeah, I, I don't necessarily feel like even in the crypto community that there's a consensus. I do think that when it comes to the DAO, regardless of kind of these technical issues of like, what are the exact laws and does this or that apply? I do feel like anybody would recognize what happened there as a theft, you know, just kind of like on a common sense instinctual way. So in that regard, you know, it's, it's just like, you know, it's more like if, if kids are playing on the playground and one of them like steals another kid's ball is that, like, illegal, you know? <laughs> no, but it's a theft. And so, you know, I think people would recognize that that's what happened here with the Dow hack.
0: I think, like, the argument here is that, okay, like, taking the kids in the playground, it's like, imagine that the kids were playing a game that was super complex, and that one of them figured out some loophole in the rules of the game that allowed them to steal the ball and so it's i think that's kind of the the question here is it like okay he was able to steal the ball but he followed the rules of the game even though he found a loophole so i think that's kind of what is tricky about this it's like it's not so straightforward you know it's like i, I can see both sides of the argument but it's yeah. i mean it's what makes this so fascinating Exactly. Yeah.
1: And kind of the exact analogy or not analogy, but scenario was used where I, you might've remembered in the book, I quoted some social media thing where people were arguing about this, like on Reddit or something. And someone wrote, oh, okay. So the guy who stole my car knows more about wiring than I did. Therefore there's no theft. (laughs) Like just being sarcastic, you know? Yeah, Yeah. 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 So yeah, it's, it's a, it's a tough question.
0: Yeah, the other implication that I thought was interesting was how chain analysis was able to unmix Bitcoin transactions. So I I, I think that was like one of the th- the issues that like shocked the crypto community the most because I mean just like for background for those listening there are things called crypto and like Bitcoin mixers where you, you're able to send a transaction and the services kind of mix addresses up so that the transaction that comes on the other side, can can be traced back to the original sender. And so this is used not always for like illegal and like illegitimate reasons. Like it's sometimes used just because people want to maintain their privacy on these public open blockchains. But now like if suddenly you know that these mixers can be unmixed. It it kind of like opens a question of okay, where where do we stand with privacy on on Bitcoin and on other public blockchains? Yeah. No,
1: I had the same same reaction and I was saying, like I wrote a little kind of side blog post when the news when I released the news and said, oh, I bet anybody who's used wasabi in the last However many years now, is just like, uh uh-oh, especially if they were using it for illicit purposes. So it's definitely a question, you know, you've probably heard of secret network, which is private by default. And I do wonder if like in the long term, if something like that will be used more. And yet at the same time, it's also like, well, Bitcoin and Ethereum have so much market dominance and they're, you know, the, the network effect is important. So I kind of wonder how would a shift like that happen I don't know, we may just end up with public blockchains and other forms of privacy. I, I, you know, I'm not sure, but yeah, I just, I definitely feel like that's, it's a huge revelation.
0: The DAO hack was a story to behold, but it's by no means the only theme of the cryptopians. Well, my book on Ethereum, the infinite machine, included more of the context leading up to Ethereum and spent a little more time on its impact with ICOs and DeFi, Laura's Cryptopians delves deeper into the Ethereum story itself and those at the core of the project, making new revelations and delivering an extremely detailed account. What were some of Laura's biggest discoveries and what surprised her the most? Sirion is mission control for Web3 giving users the ability to trade DeFi tokens, transfer assets across chains, and show off their NFT collections all in one place. Sirion offers a multi-chain experience with asset tracking and trading across seven networks including Polygon, Optimism, Arbitrum, and BSC, so you'll never miss an opportunity waiting on gas fees to drop. NFT owners can also see their favorite collectibles and art as widgets on their iPhones or Apple Watches, and send them to family and friends in a few clicks. Users can explore every corner of the metaverse with Sirion from their web, desktop, and mobile apps. Head to sirion.io to connect your wallet and get started today. Wow.
1: I mean, oh God, there were so many... I mean, when I went to write the book, you know, I I didn't know even a fraction of what ended up being in it, you know, so I, d- I don't want to give too much away, but there definitely was a surprising little nugget about the DAO, which people will learn about just like a little subplot with someone not previously known to be in crypto, but I will have him on my show to talk about this, who... Kind of used the Dao to his advantage. That was very fascinating. Then the whole Poloniak story—I didn't know. You know that they were quite secretive. You know, I, I never spoke to them or anything. They also—they didn't talk to me for the book. And then the 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 whole saga with Ming Chan, the former executive director of the Ethereum Foundation, I had kind of heard over the years. You know, just like a few things here and there, but like. Not anywhere near as much as you know what eventually I was able to put in the book, so there were things like that. A lot of the interpersonal stuff between like Gavin and Jeff, I didn't know you know, I didn't even really know Jeff at all. even barely knew Gavin, really. I'm trying to think of some of the other things. I guess the consensus story, I think was kind of already known here and there because there were already a bunch of articles in that direction, so that might might not be as surprising to people. But, but yeah, there there were a lot of things, you know, one thing actually also that I feel ended up being great that I could include in the book, which I, again, didn't expect was I, you know, I, I also barely knew Vitalik and to see kind of by the end how he had changed so much, just he had grown a lot as a person. And so by the end, I suddenly realized like, oh, this kind of is like a coming of age story for Vitalik, which I didn't, know when I went to write it. So that was kind of like another aspect I feel, yeah, that just came across in the book. And yeah, it just was a surprise to me.
0: Yeah, the whole Vitalik storyline was was really great. I also kind of s- saw that change in him from being more like someone who is more subject to manipulation from others to someone who is able to stand his own ground and has a group of friends who are actually his friends and not using him for something else. I thought that was really yeah. well done. So now that the book is out, like, First of all, like, how do you feel? And and second, given like all of these things that you uncovered, what has been like some of the initial reactions that you've seen? Well, you know, something that was
1: so nice and gratifying was the day that we released the DAO attacker news, which was the day, the same day my book came out. I, it was just pretty much all positive from the Ethereum community, which was so nice. You know, in the previous weeks, we'd had Buzzfeed report on the Creators of the Board API Club, and they got a lot of pushback for that, and nobody pushed back on me. Well, not nobody. I like somebody kept saying I should have told law enforcement. I was like, do you know it's not my job to do that? <laughs> I was a little bit like, I, that's that's not what I do. But anyway, so I I uh, just felt like people were tweeting at me that I was the goat, which was so nice. Like multiple people tweeted that at me, which like honestly for a crypto for the crypto people to like. You know, complimented journalist like that. I mean that was that was really nice. And you know, since the book has come out, yeah, like people have been tweeting like they lo- they're loving it and you know, people should read it and and stuff like that, which is great. And some people have sent me private messages just being like, oh wow, your explanation of the Dow attack was amazing. Like, you know, they're like coders and they're like, oh, I learned stuff reading your technical descriptions that he was like, like you know, this person in particular was like, "I you know I could understand everything and and I learned a lot from reading that so that was great and yeah in general like it's it's really been positive and it, it just makes me feel good like okay I spend all these years of my life on this thing and you know what people en- are enjoying it so that feels good
0: <laughs> amazing were you terrified of the backlash I'm I'm just like because I was. Like before, before publishing the Infinite Machine, I was like, "Oh my god, is everyone gonna come after me?" But then seeing how like people just like support and and rally you is is amazing. I'm I'm wondering kind of if if you were like super nervous leading up to it, or just like just like you emotionally how how you're like the lead um, up and then today.
1: Yeah, I was a little bit in the sense that. You know, definitely the presentation is like Ethereum warts and all, or like crypto warts and all. Uh, well, Ethereum slash ICOs warts and all. And it was not, you know, universally positive. There's definitely a lot of negative things in the book. And I kind of thought, okay, so who's the natural audience? Because you would think it would be Ethereum people, but there's definitely certain things in here that Ethereum people maybe aren't going to be super excited to see in the book. But actually, honestly, the reception I've gotten so far is actually really, really positive. So then I was like, oh, okay. So maybe they just like that the story is accurate. You know, so like, like Christoph Jens, who was one of the creators of the DAO, he said for all the parts that he knows that my story was like totally, totally accurate. And so, and, and like, I even know, so there's a funny thing, you know, I worked with this fact checker to, to just make sure everything was really buttoned up. And there's this one scene where it it centers around one person and they did not speak to me for the book. And I think what I did was I tried to imagine myself as them in that scenario. And I wrote one sentence, just like, just kind of maybe explaining their mental state, but it, re- it was really my imagination. <laughs> my fact checker was like, I don't, I don't see anything about this. Like, where, where did you get that? And I was like, oh, right. You know, I I I just kind of imagined that up, and so we deleted. It. But it's like the, literally the only sentence where he was like, "You didn't get this from anywhere," and I was like, "You're right, I didn't." But everything came from other people. What you know, I, I do know that the, like one of the people maybe that maybe feels like whatever their portrait is is maybe a little bit less un, less flattering. Said something like, "Oh, I have a gripe against them." Like some people told me that that's what they said. But everything came from their, you know, the people they've worked with. like None of it came from me. Like, I definitely didn't know all of that stuff, you know. So I, they can say that, but, you know, it came from other people. Like, that's, that's how I did the book. So, yeah. If they have issues with other people, then I guess they're going to find out about it. But they already knew also from the fact checking. So they, right. nobody should be surprised by anything in the book.
0: That's perfect. Yeah. I, I think that's how these nonfiction books should be. It's like you you do your reporting and you just state the facts. You write what you know, what can be verified. And that way, you know, whatever issues anyone has, it's not issues with you as the author. It's, you know, issues with your sources, basically. So yeah. I, I think that's why that's kind of what I my takeaway was with Infinite Machine as well. It's like, you know, I just reported the facts and what I found. And yeah, I think people really, really value it. So for those reading the book, Cryptopians, what do you think that teams like founders and projects building crypto today can learn about how Ethereum was built? Oh, wow.
1: Well, I think some of the takeaways probably would be how personalities and politics can affect the development of these things, which I actually think is really important because I think maybe that shows that process can be a really good way to kind of eliminate that that factor. Do you know what I mean? Like like if there is like strong clear processes and like and those are are set up in a way to ensure a good outcome, then it can kind of reduce the influence of these like these like wild card personalities basically. Another thing I would say probably is that security is really important, that it's a very difficult thing to predict. And obviously right now we're still seeing that with DeFi with all the hacks and everything, but that, yeah, people should still probably treat this as somewhat experimental and, and have an awareness that they're, you know, if you're so, if you're a builder that you're dealing with people's money and that they might lose it because of something that you did, or that if you're a user that when you use this, you use it in a way where your approach is that it's like more experimental and you're aware that it could be risky. Or, I mean, yeah, there, there's so many things. And oh, and then I guess you know this whole thing about like what happened with the DAO hack and then how the fork ended up creating Ethereum Classic. You know, I, I mentioned in the book that the developers kind of were a little bit in their own world and kind of didn't have an awareness about the wider crypto world. And so probably having having an awareness of how like the whole ecosystem functions and not just your part of it probably is also helpful. But yeah, those would probably be my main takeaways.
0: What about how, because like so much of the like Ethereum history is shaped by the dynamics of of its founders, right? It's like there, there was so much conflict and tension with um, the founders early on. And and like you said, like politics and, and those relationships really end up influencing how uh, the project is built and thinking like how different crypto and Ethereum, like the the ecosystem is now versus when Ethereum first started, like now, so many projects have governance or have like anonymous founders or have like these very flat structures. And it seems like just like so different from when Ethereum started out where, you know, there was like some like clear founders, there was a Swiss foundation, there was like, it was like very chaotic, but there was still like some hierarchy to it, which in the end like I don't know if it was like good or or bad for Ethereum in, in the long run like I don't know just like as an exercise do you think like Ethereum today if it's if it had started out as like a DAO with like governance tokens do you think that would have prevented some of the drama that that happened in the early days Oh wow
1: oh my gosh what a question <laughs>
0: It's so hard to say
1: because that was just such a different time. I mean, yeah, I mean, I don't even... Because, the, you know, what, what's what's weird about the question is that so much of the governance stuff now is built on Ethereum. So it's like, how could it's you true. build Ethereum it's before?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess like I, I wonder like just like stru- <laughs> like structuring a startup, you know, in the way that Ethereum did versus the ways it, the way that startups are structured today with with the like decentralized tools that that they have i don't know it's just like an interesting thought process for me <laughs> to see like how different ethereum itself started versus how like projects built on ethereum are being structured today oh, so, yeah. like, it's like completely different yeah. you know i don't know what's better to be honest like because like oh, these really? like DAO structures are like yeah they're they're I don't know if I think that it's a great experiment, but I think it's swirly to see whether they are yielding the best results, right? I don't know if it's like the most efficient way to structure a company to have these like flood structures and token governance versus like how Ethereum was structured with just like a clear, uh, you know, like founders with their each like each of them had their role, like Gavin and Jeff and Vitalik were the mo- more like technical. Uh, piece of the like of the founders and then like anthony and joe were like more like the business side and you know like they had like their clear i don't know i don't know like which which is better but yeah it's i guess it's too speculative but i just think it's it's so interesting (laughs) like how how much the space has changed because of ethereum itself right
1: yeah yeah i mean one thing Actually, that's kind of fascinating about this question is I'm just realizing that so if they'd had token governance in the beginning, then it would have ended up totally different that Anthony and Joe would have had more weight than they actually had in reality because they were the ones with the money. And what ended up actually happening was that Gavin and Vitalik and Jeff had the power And, but they wouldn't have had the money if it had been token based governance. So, so I actually think we could say that the thought experiment would be that Ethereum would have worked out very differently. And actually, unfortunately, I don't know if it would have succeeded then.
0: (laughs) That's so, yeah, that's such a great point. That's so interesting. (laughs) You're right, because Joe probably had the biggest stake. Anthony did as well. Well, Vitalik, maybe Vitalik had a sort of like veto there, right? Because he, he probably had the biggest stake of all maybe after Joe at that point in like oh, Ethereum history.
1: Like meaning, but but I'm talking about even before they got their Ether allocation. Right. I'm talking right. about like before the network launched. Yeah. Like in 2014, mm-hmm. like before they had any Ether allocation. And, and, the, and at that point, Vitalik didn't have money.
0: Right. Right. So if we're thinking, okay, like Joe and Anthony had the most capital to buy whatever governance token was ruling this DAO, then yeah then maybe they would have like they would have succeeded and they would have been like the ethereum founders <laughs> that's wild it's wild I mean, yeah it makes you that think. is wild i don't know if like yeah but token then, I, governance then I don't is think, the, the best way <laughs> yeah and i don't
1: think ethereum would have succeeded the way it did actually then so
0: yeah the untamed podcast has been running since 2016. It's one of the first non tech based podcasts centering on cryptocurrency, opening the space to a much wider audience. How has the show developed since its launch? And what's next for Laura? Unstoppable Domains is the number one provider of NFT domains. With your unique NFT domain, such as Camilla.crypto or Camilla.nft, you can replace your long, complex wallet address, verify ownership of your NFT, log into Web3 apps, And join tens of thousands of people using them as their Twitter usernames. Better yet, with unstoppable domains, you don't have to worry about gas or renewal fees and you own them forever. Go to unstoppabledomains.com and get yourname.crypto.x.nft or a range of other endings for as low as five bucks.
1: So I do two shows a week and the Tuesday show is an hour long interview sort of like what we're doing now and I'll either interview a project or maybe two founders or something or I will tackle a topic and then it will be kind of two different guests who you know don't work together and then they have kind of different viewpoints and then for the Friday show it's a shorter show it's an interview but it tends to be more on the news not always but generally so you know whatever the big news is that week i'll try to get an interview either with someone working on it or someone who can comment on it and then we do that for 20 minutes and then at the end i do what's called a weekly news recap where i just write up a brief summary of all the other big news stories of the week and then i just kind of read them like a newscaster and just make a little recording of myself and we attach that at the end of the episode and that actually came about because I do a survey every year, and my listeners requested that. And then, so the next year, I said, "Does this work for you?" And they said yes. So, so, now we we still do it. And actually, in the last survey, I, you know, because so there's so much news now in crypto, so I did ask them like, should I increase the frequency? But actually, surprisingly, they they like it once a week, and they don't feel the need to have it more than more than that. So, so that's pretty much it. We also do a newsletter, and that goes out Monday through Friday. And then I, I myself have been doing additional things with like a Facebook newsletter called Bulletin that I do. And we have a premium subscription on that. And then I also write for Medium. So there's there's kind of a lot right now. But, but yeah, that's that's mainly an overview of the podcast.
0: Amazing. What are your plans with the podcast going forward? Is it, you know, are are you looking to just like continue growing it as it is or I don't know, change it or... Like, what's your kind of long term vision with it? So,
1: I will probably continue the two shows the way that they are. I am kind of uh, looking at other things that that might happen with that, but I, I'm not quite ready to talk about them. So, mm-hmm. people should just stay tuned for announcements when I'm ready to announce those things. But right now, well, then one last thing, you know, I. Didn't mention what the premium subscription is that we finally launched a discord group. I had wanted to launch a chat group actually like for years. But while I was working on the book, I just didn't want to get that going because I thought you never know with those things; it could like turn into a whole can of worms. <laughs> um, so I just was like, you know what? I'll just wait a little bit until I have a few. I, I can take a few things off my plate. So we just launched that, and and so it'll be nice to kind of like have more reaction from the community and and just get more feedback in that regard, like on a real time basis, rather than you know just like when I do my surveys or on Twitter or whatever. But yeah, there, there's there's more coming. Just you know, not not ready to announce.
0: Awesome. Okay, and then just like more broadly, is is your f- full focus after the book going to be on Unchained, or do you have like other projects on your plate?
1: Yeah, I have other, I have other projects, which is yeah. Again, oh, it's totally thing <laughs> that you
0: you can't pronounce it. Yeah,
1: but but one thing I will say is that I had so much fun writing the book. Like, I just loved it. Mm. I I. It, it definitely was the most fun I've ever had professionally. I just really want to do it again. And so mm-hmm. even back in October and November, when, when we finally wrapped everything, I emailed my agent right away and I was like, oh, so I want to do another book what do you think of these ideas? And he was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, <laughs> You literally haven't even published this one yet. You know, we, we need to just wait. And, but yeah, people should, you know, if they liked my book, they should definitely know that I will be doing another one at some point. And, you know, hopefully I can make an announcement about that whenever I'm ready. But I definitely plan to, again, you know, honestly, the truth is this mix for me was really good. You know, cause I, so I'm naturally an extrovert. So I love doing the podcast for that reason. But then also obviously as a creative person you need kind of like alone time to like write and report and whatever. And so having that blend of like the podcast and then the book, it was just a really good mix of like how to kind of break up my week and how to have my energy of like, you know, social time and then and then the creative stuff and so I I kind of just liked that my life was like that. And so if I could kind of keep something similar going for, you know, that foreseeable future, like that would be really ideal for me, frankly. Like I personally would, yeah, just like to do something very similar and have the same kind of mix of things going in my life.
0: Nice. So with this second book, like, do you already have a proposal or is it, or is it still like in the idea stage or like, do you already sign a deal? <laughs> Did
1: not sign a deal. Did not sign a deal. That's why I can't announce anything. So it's it's just, and I don't even know. It's just very, it's very nascent. Let's just put it that way. But let's just let's just say, uh, you know, as I said before, I loved doing the book, and so even back in the fall when I finished, I was already thinking, what's what's going to be next. So that's why, yes, I'm I'm working on stuff, but I'm not really ready to say because you know I don't really know. So.
0: Nice. Well, I can't wait to hear what what this is. Okay, and then finally to wrap up, I'd like to know, Laura, what makes you defiant? What makes me defiant? Probably the fact that I
1: really only like to work for myself. You know, I have worked for other people before other companies and, you know, when I was younger, I I just kind of kept quitting them after not very long. <laughs> and my parents, I think were like what are you doing? But now that it's all worked out, they're like, "Oh, it's okay." <laughs> they don't care anymore. But that probably is it. You know, for whatever reason, I just really like working for myself, and I've always been like that.
0: Well, it's really worked out. Well, this is amazing. i Really loved hearing about the the whole uh, process and the amazing research you did to find the Dow Hacker and and the book in general. Again, I really enjoyed it. Really recommend it. And yeah, I really congrats again and thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. I so enjoy the conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to The Defiant Podcast. Together we are taking hold of the world of DeFi and Web3 with the most influential voices in the space. Don't forget to subscribe to all our channels, our newsletter, YouTube, social media accounts, and of course, this podcast. See you next week.